What the fuck is up, world? Bialy Tlaltik Bak. We back in this bitch. Another grito. Another podcast for that ass. Coming live to you from El Paso, Texas. Chuco Town. The United States of motherfucking America is what they tell us that this land is called. We call it by a bunch of different other names. Turtle Island, Samanawak, Anuak, Abyayala. You know the deal. It goes on and on and on. The list goes on and on. And many of people's attempts historically to try to make sense of this bitch that we find ourselves in. And this bitch in this particular sense is not just Turtle Island, but I mean Earth, Life, Existence period, bro. People always be naming shit. In philosophy, we call these people nominalists, okay? Some of my favorite nominalists are the ostrich nominalists. And uh, the ostrich nominalists are so named and because of their habit of sticking their head into the dirt when pressed to find out, or rather, when pressed to give a definition about why it is that the words that they've ascribed to, uh, you know, reference reality mean what they mean. And they stick their head in the dirt like the classical cartoon that those of us who are my age, right? The late millennials, early millennials, I don't understand the differentiation. All I know is that I was born in the mid 80s, okay? So whatever the fuck millennial that makes me, that's what I am. We've seen the cartoons in the sand, or rather the cartoons where the fucking ostrich sticks its head in the sand in order to avoid any potential threat, or at least it's perceived avoidance of any potential threat. But obviously the hilarity is knowing that just because you don't fucking see it doesn't mean that the threat is not there, right? So how the fuck we get from there, from uh, naming the continent that I'm on, completely fucking irrelevant. But the reason I bring it up is before I get into this podcast today, which is actually going to be, um, for those of you who follow me on the gram, I made mention to a lecture that I had shared. I, I try to pop my, fresh, my, my lectures fresh every semester, you know what I mean? So what I mean by that is I will create new lectures every fucking semester. I will go through um, material that I feel needs to be covered. And those lectures are pretty much set in stone. You know what I mean? Allegory of the cave type shit. That's always a mandatory. Radical skepticism. That's always a mandatory. Um, Transcendental idealism. That's always a mandatory, right? And one of the ones that's also a mandatory is absolute idealism, namely because it sets me up for the inversion of uh, absolute idealism, which is historical dialectical materialism, or is simply referred to in many circles as Marxism, okay? Not because I personally am a proponent of Marxism, but rather because I like to expose as many students to as many different philosophies as possible. Anyways, it's this absolute idealism that I was mentioning in my uh, in- on the Instagram, okay? Um, by the way, OG underscore ice nice 13. For those of you who haven't followed along on the gram, what are you waiting for, dog? Holla at your boy. You know what I mean? Um, for those of you that are finding this via the podcast apps, that's where you can find me the most. I do occasionally check the Facebook, right? But it's very rare. The Facebook pages, it's, it's, it's more complex than an Instagram page. So I really don't fuck with it too much, but you could find me there as well. And, um, on YouTube, YouTube, for some reason, I haven't been able to post my, my previous podcast, but I'm going to figure out what the fuck is going on and get on that as well. Right. Anyways, um, circling back to this whole fucking tangential part that I'm talking about, uh, it's the continental aspect, not the continental as in philosophy, but uh, the, con- the, the continent that I find myself in, right? Specifically with this absolute idealism uh, I made reference to in this Instagram post that this philosophy in general, it's very, um, it deeply influences a lot of people's lives at this point. It's not even just Americans anymore. It actually started in Europe, in Europe right? Um, so that's where the continental distinction that I was making before just a couple seconds ago comes into play the distinction between continental and analytic philosophy, right? It's so dubbed because it comes from the continent of Europe. You know what I mean? Um, anyways, 
this philosophy is referred to as absolute idealism. And the one that I referred to, the one that I focus on specifically is the version that is given to us by a German philosopher by the name of George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, or just the way I call him Hegel, GWF Hegel. Okay. Um, Hegel was an absolute, an absolute idealist that was philosophizing at about the time of the French revolution, which as you will come to find in this forthcoming podcast is a time of great fucking upheaval across the world for European people. Okay. It was a time of great upheaval period for, you know, the indigenous peoples of Turtle Island for sure, because by this point that I already been dealing with, you know, 300 years of colonialism, and I'm sure it was a time of great upheaval for the people of Eastern Europe as well and Asia. You know what I mean? But we're focused. Well, this po- this uh, particular philosophy is focusing specifically on the effects from Eastern Europe and the, re- or rather, Western Europe. And the reason why I highlighted explicitly so is obviously here in the, what is now referred to as the United States of America. This fucking particular philosophy, the ideas, if you will, that were espoused in this philosophy, as you'll come to find as the lecture that I, or rather, well, it is a lecture, so that's fair and sane in that part. But the podcast that I'm giving you today. Uh, you'll come to find how ideas influence our everyday actions. You know what I mean? So in that uh, particular respect, it's important to highlight how the ideas that were circulating in, you know, Western Europe at this time directly impacted the formation of the United States of America. Okay. And by proxy, they currently are impacting us still to this day. Again, um, returning back to the point that I was initially making is usually I try to fucking, you know, I try to cook up fresh lectures every single semester. And, um, I actually stumbled upon this particular lecture that I'm about to share with you all today on accident. I was just digging through the crates, if you will, to use a little bit of the hip hop pedagogy. By that, I mean, I was just going through the old shit that I have stored up that I haven't really taken a look at in a while just to see what's on there. You know, maybe there's some ideas that I've missed that I can go back and circle upon, maybe perhaps even expand upon further. And um, I was honestly, me personally, blown away by how relevant everything that I mentioned in this particular lecture was. It was so relevant, honestly, that I didn't even feel the need to fucking create a new one for what's happening currently right now in the United States of America, but definitely also around the world, I'm sure as well. I know um, the Dutch recently, for instance, they just, uh, the Belgium, I'm sorry. I, you know what? My, I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance <laughs> to those of you who are listening from Europe, which by the way, let me just get into it now uh, before I continue on even further, because I wanted to start off by talking about this, but now that I'm here, let's fucking do it, dog. Some quick shout outs. The reason why I've been focusing so much on continents and location and all that is because two people reached out to me in the time between my last podcast and the time between, well, obviously this one, right? Episode 45, The Fifth Son. For those of you who haven't peeped that, you should go ahead and do so. Talking all about the Nawa ritual sacrifice and shit. You know what I'm talking about? But um, in the time that I've released that uh, podcast up until now that I'm recording this one, a couple of weeks already, I've had two people from, uh, from Europe contact me. And yo, I got to tell you, man, that shit legitimately means the fucking world to me. One, uh, shot, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm even bringing this up is so I can give you a shout out, dog. Like for real, this shit means so much to me that it's only appropriate that I, I can't, I, it's the only way that I find that I could potentially, that I could possibly pay proper homage to, you know, you going out of your fucking way to not only listen to the podcast from some fucking rambling Chicano philosophy professor from Turtle Island, you know what I mean? But to feel so empowered or rather to feel so moved by it to actually, you know, reach out to me and say like, hey, I found your podcast. This shit was pretty dope. I'm looking forward to the next one. Like, yo, legit straight the fuck up, dog. That shit makes my day every fucking time. It doesn't matter how fucking great a day I'm having or how terrible a day I'm having. That shit will fucking exponentially increase the overall amount of happiness that I'm experiencing in that day. So shout out the long way introduction to uh, Miss Katie B. Hoffman, all right, from across the pond in England somewhere 
who reached out and, you know, uh, messaged and said, yo, this particular podcast, this episode, I believe it was on Heidegger. Uh, it helped me understand a little bit of the Heideggerian philosophy. So, yo, for reals, I actually woke up to that particular message and that shit fucking made the rest of my day. I didn't give a fuck. I was like, yo, I can go on and have, you know, a terrible day from here, but my day is going to be fucking dope as fuck because of, you know, Miss Katie B. Hoffman reaching out and saying like, yo, that shit was dope. You know what I mean? Um, the second one comes from, yo, I, before I even continue with the second one, let me uh, further qualify it by saying that I hope I don't give the impression that just because I talk about a lot of uh, Chicano uh, sovereignty and, you know, uh, self-determination and all that kind of shit that I have beef with any particular kind of people because I really fucking don't, yo. I, if you listen to this podcast enough, you'll know that by this point, hopefully, that I take this very quote unquote, I say quote unquote, because it's not his unique idea, but it's one that he definitely espoused and it's one that's absolutely influenced me, Nietzschean in, uh, approach to ethnicity. I think, fuck, I really don't care about ethnicity, dog. Like racism to me is like the most vulgar display of human action. It's fucking base level chimp shit. You know what I mean? So with that in mind, I can also see how a lot of the shit that I do talk about can seem as though it could have the appearance as though I'm talking shit about white people, European people, you know what I'm saying? But it's not true. That's absolutely not the case, man. Like, again, this racism, this ethnicity, this focus on ethnicity, identity politics in general, I, I think personally that's very low, vulgar, base level human existence. You know what I'm saying? Uh, if I speak on these issues, it's because I'm just bringing to light, you know, and perhaps a little bit of anger and frustration, no doubt, in the interest of full disclosure. But um, if, if, if it gets the impression that it's always coming across as hostile, it's necessarily that, that's absolutely not the impression that I'm trying to give. When I speak about, again, Chicano sovereignty, about the initial contact between European and uh, indigenous peoples here of Turtle Island, uh, the Christianity and all that kind of shit, like it's not it doesn't come from a, it doesn't come from a place of hatred. It really does come from a place of love. OK, um, and speaking of love, the second person that reached out to me just so happens to come from one of the countries that although I've never been to, it's on my fucking to go list. Okay, I absolutely fucking love. I love everything about this country, chief among which being the fact that they've given to me the music in my life that has been perhaps the most important music that I've ever heard. <laughs> Maybe be just like a slight second behind hip hop music. And that is Norwegian melodic death metal, bro. Like, what the fuck? Are you kidding me? Shout out at the gates. Shout out dark tranquility. Shout out to just the Gutenberg scene, period, dog. Like, I can't tell you how deeply influenced my life just i can't say deeply influenced because i don't play melodic death metal you know what i'm saying but yo just my loss of words alone i'm hoping is fucking evidence enough to uh, you know uh, uh uh explain just how deeply influenced and just how impactful my life has been by norwegian melodic death metal you know what i'm saying so with that said the second shout out that i'm trying to give here is to a gentleman by the name of i hope i'm pronouncing this correctly it's uh sergey Leininger, okay, who reached out from Norway and said the same, something along the same lines, like, yo, shout out the podcast, yo, shout out to you, Sergey, okay, and again, shout out to fucking Miss Katie B. Hoffman, and realistically, shout out to every single last one of y'all motherfuckers listening to this, I cannot explain to you how much it truly means to me. Now, circling back to the fucking actual content of the podcast itself, it's again, a lecture that I had posted about four years ago, and, um, when I was going back to listening through it and, you know, trying to see what the fuck I could potentially mine from it or, you know, expand upon, I realized just how fucking still to this day relevant everything that I said was, even though I'm not explicitly naming shit, like it's still happening here in the United States of America and it's still happening across the fucking world. You know what I mean? 
And we're going to find that a lot of this reason is because of the ideas that were espoused during the time that this philosophy was developed by Hegel, okay? And, you know, in returning back to the point that I'm trying to make is how ideas influence our lived experience. Like, if these ideas are prominent, of course they're going to influence people. And, of course, those people are going to take these fucking ideas and they're going to, you know, uh, implement them in the real world. And we're seeing the effects of those actions from fucking, you know, 200, 300 years ago in full effect here today, but we're seeing it more from, if you to use a language of, that I'm going to introduce later in the podcast, the, the antithesis of what it was initially intended to be, okay? Which, if we're going to follow this, you know, Hegelian uh, uh, um, dialect, we're going to find is a necessary component in the ultimate synthesis of a greater absolute reality. Now, to be fair, like I said, this fucking absolute idealism is just one half. It's not, the, I'm, I'm not trying to give the impression that it's the correct answer. There are plenty of Hegelians out there that absolutely will give you the impression, but I should qualify it by stating that this Hegelian philosophy, again, I only introduced to introduce the second component, uh, component to, uh, to it, rather, which, again, is the historical dialectical materialism, which is going to want to tell us, like, no, it's just a material struggle between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, between the haves and the have-nots, between the 1% and the 99% and all that kind of shit. And that is the historical development of why the world is functioning the way that it currently is. And ultimately, what we're seeking is a synthesis, not in the terms of these ideas that influence our actions, but rather by uh, a synthesis that's going to come to us by, by, by material conditions, by changing the material conditions, by seizing the means of productions, to use this fucking Marxist language, if you will. You know what I'm saying? So probably already with that, you can already start to see how much of the lecture that I'm going to sh turn into a podcast for today is still relevant in our current times, right? Um, but before I do, uh, I want to actually just finish by concluding that the reason why I was so focused on, you know, location, on our continent, on our fucking, you know, you're li I'm living in Turtle Island, you're living in Europe in the particular country that you might be in, or wherever else it is on Turtle Island that isn't El Paso, Texas, you know what I mean? Um, I focus on it because I find one of the things that, you know, okay, let me give you further, like, just this is my podcast, dog. Like, this is not my class. If this was my class, I would never fucking do this because I never, I would never, ever, ever want to try to sway students' opinions in one way or another by giving them my own personal beliefs because I recognize the position that I hold and I recognize that students might just assume that because I, as the professor, am the one saying that this is what I believe is correct, that that, that could potentially influence them as well. Like, nah, fuck that, dog. I want critical thinkers. I want people who, in my classes, who come up to their own conclusions on their own. You know what I'm saying? So, Although I would never do that in my classroom. This is my fucking podcast, dog. That's why I have no problem admitting it. While I did do my master's thesis on this Hegelian version of absolute idealism, real realistically speaking, I fucking hate Hegel, dog. Like, straight the fuck up. I hate Hegel. For those of you who have read Hegel, potentially, you'll know why. For those of you who haven't, I'm just going to tell you straight up, this motherfucker didn't even try to hide his racism, Okay. Uh, this motherfucker was had clearly fucking hostile views towards uh, indigenous peoples of Turtle Island and uh, sub-Saharan African people. So black and brown people, essentially. Right. So I don't try to fucking hide my disdain for Hegel. And although I can see how his ideas could be perceived as, you know, absolute or perhaps even true by definitely Christian people. I don't ascribe to that fucking uh, that ontology, as we've already mentioned. That's a dualistic ontology. So I don't even agree with it on a philosophical level. I agree with more, obviously, the Nahuatl monistic level. You know what I mean? Um, but with that in mind, there is one thing that he does say that I really do fuck with a lot. And that, and again, I'm not trying to give him the unique credit for it. It's not something that he introduced, but it's something that, you know, should it, it bears mentioning. Uh, and that is the idea that, you know, 
let's use the J. Cole. Let's use J. Cole, dog. Let's give J. Cole some credit. Today I realize we are the same, you and I. Different set of uh, different color skin, different set of eyes. But there's only one. What the fuck exactly does J. Cole say in that Fire Squad? I believe it goes on and say, the song is called Fire Squad. Uh, but I believe it goes on to say there's only one God, okay? Like you are you, you and me, we're the same thing. We're the same consciousness experiencing itself subjectively to use the Bill Hicks joke. You know what I mean? Um and the 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 color of the flesh prison that we find ourselves in the fucking that, that shit's dumb as fuck dog like i don't I, I don't give a fuck about that so whether you come from you know england or norway or uh turtle island like we're all the same thing dog we just come in a different fucking set of skin different set of eyes you know what i mean and the goal if anything with this podcast has been to try to fucking expand on that to try to you know to try to Send the, the beacon signal out there to the different peoples from all around the world, given the, the beauties afforded to us by technology, and let it be known. Like, yo, I don't give a fuck what your ancestors did, dog. I don't give a fuck about what my ancestors did. We're here now, okay? And we're trying to move this fucking collective human experience forward together. And I understand full well that we're not going to be able to do so if we're constantly at odds, the odds of which were developed during the, you know, the time that this philosophy was made. And that the only way we're going to be able to do that is to, you know, put aside all the differences and move forward collectively together as one. Okay. That's the end of my fucking hippy dippy long winded introduction. With that in mind now, I'm going to turn it over to the actual lecture component of the podcast. I tried to go through it already and edit out any mention about like quizzes and tests and midterms and all that kind of shit. But if it is in there, I apologize, you know, uh, just, Try to ignore it the best that you can and, you know, soak up the material for what it is. And also, I should further qualify by, this, by stating that, again, this is just a cursory introduction to absolute idealism. It goes far deeper than I could ever cover in one, uh, a couple of lectures, rather, a week's worth, uh, uh, honestly, of lectures in an introduction to philosophy class at a community college. Motherfuckers do entire PhDs and spend entire careers on this philosophy. So if you are interested in it, I highly encourage you to, you know, further... Uh, 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 inform your knowledge of absolute idealism beyond that which I am currently about to provide you with. So yeah, with that in mind, uh, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. I'm going to do this now because obviously I'm not going to come back at the end. But uh, yeah, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. And until next time, peace. All right, class, what's up? Here we are again, getting ready to continue our little philosophical journey. We're going to pick up today uh, with uh, the ideas of metaphysical or as it's referred to in the book as absolute idealism, specifically by focusing on the views that are espoused by the philosopher G.W.F. Hegel. Now, again, I don't really like to give these philosophers their, their due proper, right? But this one is of particular interest to me, right? For reasons that we're going to see as this little lecture series on metaphysical idealism progresses, right? Uh, it's not necessarily the philosophy that Hegel advances that's unique to himself, because, again, these ideas existed long before Hegel ever even came into existence, right? But there's something uniquely special about Hegel that reserves a special place, at least in my personal view, that needs to be espoused. And the idea here, again, is essentially how the Hegelian philosophy, if you will, lays the foundation for much of American policy still to this day. So this idea we're progressing through his lecture series, you're gonna see how deeply your life and my life has been affected, not specifically by the Hegel the person, but by the philosophies that are being espoused by Hegelianism in general, right? This entire country was founded on, you know, Hegelian principles. Again, not because it's unique to Hegel specifically, right? But he's the one that advanced them in such a way that undoubtedly influenced the time in which she was living in, right? The time in which she was living in, of course, being that 
of the 18th century that just so happened to lead to the formation of this very country of ours, okay? So, with that in mind, we get into Hegel, who, for him, philosophy, right? What he believes is, is that the highest thought and feelings of an age that are made self-conscious. So when people are philosophizing, they are at the pinnacle of thought and feelings, right, of a particular age. And that those thoughts and those feelings are being made self-conscious, if you will. They're being made aware to the individual minds. As we're gonna see here, Hegel has this conception of the metaphysical or again, absolute, I'll be using the terms interchangeably, right? Uh, idealist that he is, essentially, it's this idea that there exists a universal mind for Hegel, Christian, so it's gonna be a God mind, okay? And then there exists, it's the mind with a capital M, the universal mind, and then there's a bunch of little individual minds, mind with a cat with a lowercase m, people like you and I, right? And that when people like you and I are philosophizing, we are uh, making aware, self-conscious, if you will, the thoughts and feelings of an age, okay? So whatever particular culture at any given age, essentially, whatever they valued, this idea then is going to become aware, these ideas are gonna become aware of this fact uh, through through the actual act of philosophizing, right? So whatever it is that we value as a society, as a culture, in this particular era, it's going to come to fruition in the form of our philosophies, okay? So, I mean, we get this idea sometimes that, you know, philosophy seems to be relatively meaningless, right? There's great memes out there about people who are philosophy majors doing work, let's just say outside of philosophy, right? Uh, attesting to this very fact. But, you know, despite, again, it's perceived irrelevant, it's quite clear that there, at least there shouldn't be no doubt that, you know, uh, the, the, this process of philosophizing, it's, it's, it's a pretty universally shared experience, right? Uh, specifically, if we're using it in terms of that it being advanced by Hegel here and the act of becoming self-conscious and self-reflective, right? Because we recognize that in this uh, act of reflecting on how this is the case, the philosophy, the, the values that we value and all that kind of stuff, or why it's important, for example, would, you know, not, this, this is the very act of philosophizing, okay? And that if that's the, if that so is the case, then that the ideas that are gonna be developed in this process, uh, they become consciously or unconsciously, this is what serves to influence the values that determine our very actions, right? So this is just a very abstract, complex way of saying a very simple idea. And the simple idea here is as follows. All actions, according to his metaphysical idealism, originate in the realm of consciousness, okay? And when we reflect on them, when we philosophize about them, we in turn manifest those metaphysical actions into the material realm that we're living in, right? It's like a beautiful thing about things such as a cell phone is you recognize that ideally, you know, for those of you who were born into a world where cell phones were already here, you kind of just assume that cell phones have always existed. But I know me personally, I was born in a world where cell phones, I mean, they existed. They were those huge uh, block phones that people used to carry around, right? But they were nowhere near as readily available as they are today. And if we go back just one generation before me, right? The idea of carrying around a mobile phone on your pocket, in your person, right, was entirely unheard of. We recognize that at one point or another, somebody sat down, okay, and they had this idea in their head about how great it would be to create a device that you could carry with you at any given moment that would allow you to communicate with any person across the entirety of the planet with just the swipe of a thumb, okay? 
And that that idea that manifested this metaphysical idea that was once nothing more than, you know, a thought, an imagination, right? The, 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 the process of an imagination, okay, unfolding, that that was able to manifest itself into the material world, right? And it's not just our phones, obviously. It's this chair, the guitar, the, the couch, the books, everything, the road that you're driving on, the computer, the phone that you're watching this on, the roads that we drive on, like I said, right? All of it originated in the right in in, in in the realm of consciousness right in our ideas none of this was is natural we as people made this the natural world you know it, it doesn't it doesn't possess these the these material goods that we as individuals come to identify ourselves with right and that this is only made possible when people sit back and reflect about their position in the world and in this so doing you know Hegel's going to say this is the act of philosophizing right now of course it's not just our material goods that come to us in this form, but it's also things like our culture, our values, our customs, our traditions. We recognize that all of this, right, is 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 not natural to the human species per se. There's a big difference as to why a dog doesn't celebrate, you know, Dia de, the Dia de Muertos and all that kind of stuff. It's just it's it's not it's not in the realm of consciousness. It's not in the realm in the realm of possibility. This is a human construct that people created. It started in the realm of consciousness, right? And through the process of self-reflecting and philosophizing, we constructed this reality in which it gives us some sense of identity, namely in the sense that we celebrate Dia de Muerto, Dia de los Inocentes, Christmas, the 4th of July, a quinceañera, a marriage, all these kinds of customs and traditions. Again, they originate in the realm of consciousness and through the act of self-reflective uh, of philosophizing, right? We manifest them into reality, all right? So in that respect, Hale's going to tell us like, yeah, you might think that philosophy is irrelevant, but realistically, you know, it, it's a universally shared experience. It serves as the foundation for our universally shared experience, right? So uh, the idea here then is how deeply these ideas the, 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 these ideas that were once metaphysical that we manifested into this concrete world, how deeply they serve to drive our actions. Think about it in terms of values and cultures and norms. How much of your behavior in general is influenced by and directed towards not only the values that you were socialized with, but achieving the goals that are created by the society that you were uh, socialized with, right? We know for a fact that both you and I are here right now for that very reason. You are here, for instance, right now to get the degree that it is that you seek. The degree that you're seeking, of course, as we've been discussing all semester long, is a value that has been instilled in you by the society that you're living in. Okay. And that had you been born in a different society or perhaps in a different, you know, in a different epoch in which a degree wasn't necessarily a valued uh, uh, pursuit, you probably wouldn't be here watching that this video. Okay. Unless, you know, philosophy is something that you're deeply, you know, passionately about, passionate about. As for me personally, I can say the same. I'm only here right now, mainly because there's no doubt that I love philosophy and there's very little outside of philosophy that I would want to be doing with my life, right? But also because, hey, I was socialized to desire a job, for instance, right? So I am here currently working to achieve the goal that it is that we that I have been personally socialized with society, namely the goals that come in the form of capitalism and so on and so forth, right? So we recognize how these uh, all these ideas that once originated in the metaphysical realm start to influence our behavior in even the most subtle ways, right? So, <clears throat> going back to Hegel in particular, right? Uh, again, he is philosophizing in the 18th century, right? 
Uh, it, it, it's a period of alleged high culture, if you will, right? And I scare quoted for a very specific reason that we're going to be seeing in the upcoming videos, okay? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, society, a society, again, uh, uh, at least during a period of alleged high culture, right? And it's one of undoubted conservatism. There's just no doubt about it, okay? Uh, so namely, uh, specifically, he's writing during the French Revolution, okay? Which, as we, as those of us who are aware of our history, right, we recognize it as this watershed moment in world history, right, that directly influenced many of his ideas, right? This French Revolution is a profound shift in human history, right? And this profound shift in human history leads directly to the influence of many of the ideas that Hegel comes to espouse. The most important thing that we should take away from, you know, the, the, the French Revolution is that for the first time, we, we, we have a shift towards democratic representation in government, right? Prior to this, there was always the monarchy and the monarchy that got its power from God that said, I, as God, am manifesting my power in the sovereign on earth. And thus you must obey the sovereign as you would obey me. Because again, the sovereign is a direct representation of me on earth. And conversely, the sovereign would say the same when invoking the authority of God, right? But God is dead, man. Remember, okay? And now anything that was associated with God, as we've already discussed throughout the course of the semester, is getting swept away, including the idea of a sovereign. And it's being replaced by more democratic principles, more liberal principles, progressive principles of freedom, justice, equality, brotherhood, fraternity, all these kind of ideas, right, are starting to replace that of uh, of the monarchy, okay? So clearly we recognize that this era in which Hegel is philosophizing is an era that is marked by war and it's one that is marked by upheaval, right? And it's one that is marked by the self-aggrandizement, if you will. And definitely, definitely this exaggerated conception of history, okay? If it is from here, the Hegel, the Hegelian philosophy, that we start to see what is going to be referred to throughout the remaining portion of the semester as the quote-unquote victor's narrative. We say, for example, that the reason the United States is here today is because, you know, God decided, it was God's will to for the United States to uh, spread from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean, the manifest destiny, okay? And that, the, you know, everything that in turn that we learned about history is written from this perspective, the victor's perspective, right? The victor's narrative. But we recognize that at the same time, that there's also a different narrative, namely the narrative of the vanquished, if you will, the people who were conquered. And they don't necessarily see history the same way that the victor's narrative uh, tells us that history has been told, right? For the most, for the majority though, for the most of us, we just simply take this victor's narrative as the one absolute truth, if you will, and we just, we don't even bear, uh, bear mind to any competing ontologies or epistemologies, for example, right? And this stems directly from this Hegelian idea. This is where he's philosophizing from this idea that, yeah, the United States won because they were destined to win, right? Um, at the same time, interestingly, despite the fact that Napoleon seems, or rather that Hegel seems to have such an affinity for Napoleon in general, right? But, you know, the spirit, if you will, of the French Revolution, there seems to be a respect for, and yet an underlying fear of, these ideas of revolution. Because again, despite, you know, the revolutionary time that he finds himself in, he's living in an undoubtedly conservative, conservative era, right? So there's this respect for this ideals of revolution, 
And yet, contradictorily, this fear of, okay, the revolution. They have a passion, if you will, for the comfort that is provided to us by the status quo. And if we're being honest, the majority of us here feel the same way. We're very comfortable with the norm, right? Because the norm it gives us a sense of security, a sense of safety, right? This is what I always find so funny about people who are, you know, protesting. Not that there's anything wrong with protesting per se, right? But like the Antifa people, again, wrong. I'm not saying of one side or the other, but the idea here with, with people who find themselves to have Marxist inclinations, which we're going to discuss, not this week, but next week, right? Is this notion of, you know, I'm not saying it's good or bad, but I will say that what we have now is very comfortable, namely the status quo. And if the, if, if the idea is to flip the status quo into some sort of uncertainty, well, then we're not going to necessarily have the comfort, for instance, of being able to sit back and philosophize and take a philosophy course and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that it's not possible to do so under a, a different uh, system, only that in the process of so doing, right, it, this, this, this freedom that we have will inevitably, uh, you know, be in peril. The same could be said, for instance, during the, the Revolutionary War, uh, uh, the French Revolution, right? Obviously, the people who rebelled during the French Revolution were seeking higher values. But there's no doubt that those higher values were in jeopardy, at least during the duration of the French Revolution. And the most ironic part is those values were ultimately, you know, they were they were swallowed, swallowed up, if you will, by the ultimate ends of the French Revolution. Again, for those of us who are familiar with our, our, our world history, right? Regardless, <clears throat> we see that uh, it's out of this contradictory nature that many of these Hegelian ideas are given credence. Okay, so specifically what I mean by that is Hegel is interested in what's going to come to be referred to throughout the course of these lectures as synthesizing all of human knowledge. Okay, all of human knowledge up until when he was philosophizing, he's going to say, I, me personally, you. He was not a very humble person, this Hegelian character, for better or for worse, right? But he's going to come along and say that me, this Hegelian character, I am going to synthesize all of knowledge and all of culture into a single system in the hopes of ascribing it a teleology, okay, a purpose. Remember, teleology, an end goal. Hegel's going to come along and say, I am going to be the one philosopher that synthesizes the entirety of the history of philosophy up until this particular point, the history of human beings up until my particular point, with the sole purpose of ascribing it some sort of teleology, an end goal and a purpose for achieving that end goal. Okay. So essentially, this Hegelian character is hoping to show where human history is going and why. Um, as we're going to see throughout the progression of this lecture, this particular series on Hegel, history figures prominently in this philosophy, okay? In fact, what he's going to want to say, the history of consciousness in general is the history is of, 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 of this universal mind becoming aware of itself, if you will, okay? So, with that in mind, Hegel's going to want to tell us that there insists this absolute truth, this one universal truth above all, okay? It is the absolute truth. Right. And it's going to serve as his epistemic foundation. It's going to serve as his epistemological thesis specifically. Right. And the thesis here is that there exists this underlying, okay, uh, unifying truth, which up until he philosophizes has been inadequately expressed, he wants to argue. 
by partial truths, by the partial truths of science, specifically is what he's going to refer to it as, right? Of all the previous philosophies. So again, this Hegelian character, not necessarily the most humble individual, right? So essentially what he's going to tell us is that there's a meaning and a purpose behind life, Hegel's going to want to argue, okay? So obviously we've already covered briefly a little bit of the nihilism, and I don't know about you personally, right? But I know for me, uh, when I was first introduced to these ideas of nihilism, they're pretty powerful, right? Especially this idea when it is associated with uh, the lack of free will, when you start to realize that if my life is determined already in advance, and moreover, if life is ultimately meaningless, if God is dead and all that kind of stuff, right? Then what's the purpose of doing anything? What's the point of doing anything, right? This Hegelian philosophy in general, but metaphysical idealism as a whole, it, it doesn't want to hear any of that argument. For one, they're going to look at you and just be like, God is dead? According to who? Right? Remember, Nietzsche was not talking about the actual physical God. He was talking about the belief in God. Right? But these Hegelian philosophers are going to say, no, no, no. Uh, God is very much alive. Right? And there very much is a meaning and a purpose to life. One that Hegel wants to say prior to him, he believed had yet to be fully explicated. Okay, hence the reason why he's philosophizing. Now, to be certain, this Hegelian character in, in the initial portion of his career, he had some pretty blasphemous ideas and writings. He had his idea that Christianity, it, again, I, it, it makes me laugh just thinking about it. That's why I keep emphasizing it, right? But he had this idea that Christianity itself, this whole system that, you know, the majority of the people on this planet had still to this day live under, right? that it was inferior until he came along to fix it, okay? Um, and it, this is where the, the origination of many of his blasphemous ideas and writings come from. But nonetheless, this is a very religious philosopher that we're dealing with, right? And specifically, what he's going to want to tell us is it's because of a lack of reason and the lack of a purpose as a direct result of a failure on Christianity's behalf to adequately address the issues that have been presented by science that we had these issues, right? So he's going to want to say, the only reason that we're having this issue of the alleged death of God is because, you know, it's a direct result of Christianity's behalf, okay? The, 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 the direct result of their inability to adequately address, again, the issues that are presented by science, namely that what need do you have for some sort of metaphysical godlike being when everything in the physical world can now be explained by, uh, uh, by the natural sciences? Right. And moreover, how can this absolute metaphysical God exist if uh, if it's going to be bound to the physical laws of the universe? Because, again, doing so would threaten the perfection of this entity, in which case we recognize that it thus would not be a God. Right. Hegel's just going to come along and say that's just because Christianity has failed to adequately address these issues. Right. So as such, this Hegelian philosopher, Hegel, is going to create, seek at least to create this entirely new Christianity that's going to solve these issues. I, I mean, <laughs> the level of pretense, right? I, it's, it's admirable. I'm going to be, I'm just going to be honest with you. Like right now, like I am, uh, I'm not a Hegelian, right? For reasons that we'll see as this, as this lecture series progresses, right? Um, as, in fact, I'm fundamentally opposed to a lot of Hegel's ideas, again, for reasons that we'll see here shortly, but I will give him his due proper. The dude was not only a good philosopher, but he, I mean, the level of that he held himself up to is very admirable, right? I mean, just, you know, there's this, this great quote that says it's something along the, the most cocksure amongst us are the ones that never are, are the ones that are never, you know, intelligent, something along those lines. And the ones that are most intelligent are never the most cocksure, right? I'm butchering the quote, but the idea here is that it's always the people who seem so 
gung-ho about their beliefs that are generally seem to be the less intelligent ones and the ones that are super intelligent seem to be very insecure about their beliefs. This was not the case for Hegel, right? As is clearly made evident with these ideas. So uh, I digress. Uh, going back to this original idea about having to develop this new conception of Christianity, the problem for Hegel was that the only justification up until this point for religion had to be moral justification. That is to say, why do we need religion? Because without religion, we won't have morality, okay? And this is the problem according to Hegel, okay? So thus, Hegel's gonna reject Christianity per se, as writ at least, but mainly the kind that comes in the virtue of saying that it's only necessary in terms of, of morality, right? In favor of his own Christianity, right? As he believes that this previous Christianity, again, is insufficient in fulfilling even it's, it's, it's basic principles of morality, okay? So, with that in mind, we get to the purpose of Hegel's system, okay? And simply stated, Hegel's philosophy, again, is concerned with achieving knowledge and truth, which is absolute, okay? And that the achievement of this was the goal of ethics, politics, religion, science, and mathematics. He's gonna say, all of those particular branches of knowledge, all of those particular fields of study are all working towards achieving one thing, and that is absolute truth, okay? Now, like Kant, so for those of you who are watching, this would be a great idea for a question on the final, right? So, like Kant, Hegel begins his philosophy with an investigation of knowledge and the examination of the faculties of knowledge in order to defend morality and Christianity against their detractors from the sciences, okay? So again, Hegel, like Kant, begins his philosophy with an investigation of knowledge and the examination of the faculties of knowledge in order to defend morality and Christianity against their detractors from the sciences, okay? So basically what Hegel's doing here, right, is seeking to establish this epistemic foundation as well as maintain the efficacy of free will and the existence of God. That's what Hegel's trying to do, okay? He does this mainly by what he believes to be shortcomings in Kant's philosophy. Namely, the idea that if this notion of a transcendent metaphysical God, one which, to use our Kantian knowledge from our previous lectures, resides in the quote-unquote noumenal realm, right? If this notion is to be taken seriously, then what Hegel's going to want to say is that Kant's postulate of freedom becomes very difficult to defend, right? As once again, you cannot claim to have an omniscient, omnipresent God and autonomy at the same time. It's just not possible, right? So this assumption, according to Hegel, makes for an authoritarian type of God, right? Uh, it's an authoritarian type of God, no less, that is inconsistent with autonomous human action. You cannot have free will and determinism at the same time. It's just not possible. 
And according to the previous conceptions of Christianity, you have this authoritarian type God that's going to make this even more inconsistent and impossible, right? And what this ultimately serves to do, according to Hegel, is nothing more than create disharmony between God and man. And it's this disharmony, Hegel's going to want to say, that serves as the driving force behind his philosophy, okay? Namely, in the sense that he's trying to reconcile this disharmony, right? Now, this disharmony, according to Hegel, is only possibly resolved in what he's going to refer to as the final realization of spirit, which we're going to cover in our coming up lectures, right? Furthermore, he's going to want to say, this disharmony is the driving force behind the movement towards a synthesization between the individual and the universal. So going back to what we discussed earlier, the universal mind and the individual mind, he's going to say it's the disharmony between the two that is pushing forward to get a synthesization, a unification, if you will, between the individual minds and the universal minds, right? So essentially... What Hegel's trying to do is he's hoping, at least, right, to unify the fragmented minds by demonstrating that this transcendent, hence the transcendental, right, metaphysical God mind that allegedly exists in the noumenal realm is rather an imminent God that exists in the phenomenal realm. So he's going to want to say, essentially, in English, right, that this idea of God that Kant had as lived this metaphysical being that lives in a realm in which we as humans are incapable of perceiving, he's going to say, no, no, no. There exists a God in this phenomenal realm here, and we can, in fact, have knowledge of this God, right? Hence the whole absolute idealism, metaphysical idealism. Remember, going back to what we discussed in the beginning of the lecture, it's a universal mind, and that we essentially, and that everything in this universal mind is nothing more than an idea in this universal mind. And that if we philosophize properly, we individual minds can get knowledge of this universal mind. And that's going to be Hegel's goal of trying to prove that this Hegelian philosophy is very novel, to say the very least, right? But it absolutely also comes with its own sort of inconsistencies and utter discrepancies. In our last video, we left off talking about a schism between the absolute and the individual, between God and humans, between the universal mind and the individual minds, right? The goal then for Hegel, as was explicitly stated, is to try to synthesize these two, to try to fuse the fraction between the two, to try to somehow redeem the suffering of humans, if you will, that is caused by the split from their universal merger and all, okay? So, uh, in order to do that, remember, Hegel's talking to us about, he doesn't explain, he doesn't really ever explicitly refer to God as such, but it's quite clear that his philosophy, I mean, he's a Christian, right? And it's quite clear that his philosophy is very much directed towards trying to understand uh, a, a better, uh, to have a better understanding of God in general, right? Um, what Hegel's going to want to tell us specifically as his metaphysical idealist is that essentially thought or all of consciousness in general, right? It doesn't merely categorize reality like the transcendental uh, idealist that Kant is trying to tell us, right? Hegel's going to try to tell us, no, consciousness 
or thought in general, it doesn't merely categorize reality, okay? But it is reality. Like all of consciousness, all of thought is reality, okay? At the same time, though, Hegel's going to tell us that reality is not the expression of your particular thought or of our collective thought as a human race, rather, or of any perception. It's just like a metaphysical being, right? Because, you know, uh, he's going to want to say that reality is the expression of this infinite or absolute thought or consciousness, right? Of which you and I are just a manifestation thereof. So again, just going back briefly about what we discussed before, when we were philosophizing about reality, this again is the act of consciousness becoming aware of itself, right? Or more specifically, it's becoming infinite. There's like this great meme that talks about it. It sums this idea up in like in great detail, but it says it's it, it's quoting. Uh, uh, it's I believe the quote is by Sagan, right? But the idea is that we are nothing more as people than an accumulation of atoms that have the ability to study other atoms. That we are essentially the universe becoming aware of itself. That we as humans are uniquely, you know, we're uniquely able as this manifestation of the universe to actually look back at the universe and say, oh man, I am you, you are me, etc., and so on and so forth, right? So with that in mind, then we recognize that for Hegel, the cosmos in general, and again, as we said before in our previous lecture, that history in general, right, is simply nothing more than the concrete expression of thought, okay? Now, this notion of history it starts off with the, just the origination of consciousness, right? But it manifests itself in human forms for the explicit purpose of bringing about that one thing which is seeking to synthesize the fragment between the universal and the individual, namely spirit, right? That the, the whole process of history unfolding, if you will, is nothing more than the process of spirit unfolding in such a way to unify the fragmentation, the, to synthesize the universal and the individual by bringing forward, ideally, what Hegel's going to refer to as the absolute, okay? Absolute freedom, absolute spirit. It goes by a bunch of different names, right? But the idea here is where the conditions have been satisfied in which all alienation and by proxy suffering has been removed from the individual mind, which again is you know, it's part and parcel with much of what the Christian philosophy, what Christian uh, doctrine wants to tell you is that, you know, your suffering will eventually be redeemed by a godlike entity, right? As we discussed in our previous lecture, however, this is not capable just yet, at least according to Hegel, given the shortcomings of, of Christianity in the face of confronting the difficulties posed by science and the scientific revolution and all that kind of stuff, right? So with that in mind, Essentially, what this absolute idealism, what this metaphysical idealism is attempting to achieve is a complete and unified conception of all of reality, okay? One that gives meaning to each and every single aspect in relationship to the sum total. So what that means is it's basically a fancy philosophical way of saying, again, Hegel is trying to take into account every facet of reality, including you and me, and everybody here, right? This is a highly deterministic philosophy. And according to this uh, absolute idealism, essentially what's happening here is that spirit is progressing along a very logical and along a highly predetermined pattern of behavior for the express purpose 
of alleviating the conditions of suffering caused by the alienation between the universal and the individual mind, namely by way of bringing about the absolute that which it pines for. Okay, so this is a very interesting claim here, because if Hegel is correct, then not only do we necessarily not have free will, but for the most part, right, the role that we are consigned to in life in general is one that we are fulfilling for the express purpose of bringing about the conditions of absolute freedom for which it is that the spirit pines for, right? Now, there's going to be a lot of complications with this idea, chief among which being the fact that we realize that some people in life, they get really good rolls of the dice, right? Like if you're really lucky, you could have been born, maybe you are, I don't know, right? I've never met any of you people in person, but you could have been born one of the quote unquote rich kids of Instagram, for example, right? In which case you got a really good roll of the dice. Now, can you imagine given the materialistic nature of our society, we'll just assume, right? You were born not only a rich kid of Instagram, but you were born with all the other types of values that we value here in America. Perhaps you're really good looking. Perhaps you were straight. Perhaps you are uh, a, a, a fair complexion, as I say, light skin with blue eyes and all that kind of stuff, right? In which case, man, you 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 pulled straight aces, like right? you got lucky, right? Uh, and if, if this is according, if this Hegelian philosophy is correct, it's it's not by chance. You were consigned to that particular role in history, in life in general, to manifest a purpose. And this purpose, namely, again, is to bring about the conditions of freedom for which spirit pines for, namely by, you know, reducing the amount of alienation in, uh, inherent in human suffering because of the schism that is caused, again, between the fracture of the universal and the individual, right? Conversely, however, you could have gotten highly unlucky. And you could have been born not a rich kid of Instagram, but a very poor person financially, at least, right, who is struggling tooth and claw just to survive, right? You could have born someone who, on top of all of that, was born in a way that we in American society, at least, does not value. Maybe you were born of a particular skin color. And to, just to keep in line with the Hegelian philosophy, we'll say someone who was born in sub-Saharan Africa or someone who was born to a traditional agrarian culture, right? And then you add on to the mix on top of all that, maybe one of those people who was born as a gay person, right? Who isn't, you know, who doesn't fit a gender norm, if you will, whatever the case might be, in which case you realize, nah, your roll of the dice probably wasn't as fortunate, if you will, quote unquote, as that of somebody who was a rich kid of Instagram, right? Um, more importantly, right, <clears throat> more to the point, we can say that some people were born to be Napoleon Bonaparte, right? These great generals who have grand, you know, accomplishments, quote unquote, in their life. And other people were simply born to be the soldiers that brought about the glory that Napoleon is credited for, right? Those infantrymen on the front line who were the first to die in battle, all for the explicit purpose of giving this person who said that they wanted to overthrow the monarch and then eventually became a monarch themselves, right? That could have that 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 may as well have been you, or but if this Hegelian philosophy is correct, rather that it, it, if it was you, then it wasn't in vain. I guess you could say that it happened to you for a specific purpose, and the specific purpose again was to help bring about the conditions of absolute freedom in which the alienation inherent in the schism between the universal and the individual is synthesized, right? Now I keep stating this for a very explicit reason. But 
according to Hegel, essentially, history is to be understood as a slaughter bench, if you will, in which each individual, again, is, is recognized as an individual in their own right. Going back to our previous lectures about the fear of the authoritarian type of God, he's going to want to say, no, 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 each individual is now going to be recognized as an individual in their own unique right, okay? And uh, Hegel believes through this process, he's going to philosophize and tell us that universal reciprocity would ultimately incarnate in what he refers to as the bureaucratic state under the rule of law, okay? So what does universal reciprocity manifesting itself in the uh, bureaucratic state under the rule of law essentially states is that you as an individual are respected as an individual for the simple fact that you are a person. And we're going to ensure that this condition is necessary, is, is satisfied by establishing this bureaucratic state, if you will, that is administered by the rule of law, a state that protects your individuality and a, and a state that project, that projects, that protects, I apologize, your, uh, your, your subjectivity by rule of law. If something or someone comes along and threatens your individuality or your subjectivity, right? then we have laws in place in this country that will ideally protect you. Going back to our previous lecture, this philosophy, again, these ideas serve to ferment the majority of the, uh, 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 of the, uh, of the people who, who allegedly founded this country, I don't say allegedly, this United States country, right? It's the land itself, but the country, right? The people who laid the foundation for this country, these ideas were permeating in their consciousness and they manifested it in such a way that gave rise to a country the United States of America, right, that protects under the bureaucratic uh, 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 state, right, under the rule of law, specifically the individual person, right? According to Hegel, what comes from this is that what ultimately happens in this, in, when these kind of conditions are met is you get a state of all inclusivity, right, which, you know, uh, in turn, going back to the whole realm of philosophy, right, it is the highest manifestation of reason, right, and thus the most capable of notion. Uh, it's the most philosophy in general, right? It, it, this this nation the philosophy helps establish this nation, right, which is the ultimate manifestation of reason, as we, as we discussed in our previous lecture, right. Now, uh, as far as Hegel and his views on spirit are concerned. Again, he's going to want to tell us that the purpose of this spirit, this, 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 this universal mind. So the idea here between Hegel, just, just so we can be explicitly clear, we're talking about thought and consciousness, is he's not really arguing for dualism. He's not going to say that we exist as people and that we have a soul, per se, right? No, that's not how it works. We, as people, are essentially embodiments of a God consciousness, okay? And that this spirit is also this manifestation of this God consciousness, specifically this thought that has towards manifesting itself in the conditions of absolute freedom, right? And, you know, this ultimate manifestation of freedom, again, is the teleological process that we discussed in our previous lecture. It's a teleological process where the arbitrary exercise of power, if you will, is negated by a new state that is governed by law. Again, we're, we're, we're philosophizing. This philosopher is coming to us at a time when of radical change. No longer are we being represented by monarchs. We're being represented by the people, for the people, etc. Right? And the goal then is to rid ourselves of arbitrary ex power exercising itself in the form of a king, etc., a queen. Right? But rather, 
in the form of a new state government that is administered by law, right? When this condition is satisfied, Hegel tells us, it's ultimately going to serve to bring about what he refers to as the end of history. And this end of history is a state in which, while there undoubtedly still exists a lot of strife, right? It exists external, it exists independent of external forces. That is to say, the strife that you're experiencing, you're not experiencing it because there are these external forces like an individual or a, a, a collective of individuals who are threatening your well-being. It's now existing for other purposes, like you internally and all that kind of stuff, right? Um, so the idea here is that for Hegel, this idea is not new. He's going to want to argue. This idea was first introduced into the realm of consciousness with the ancient uh, philosophy, with the ancient cultures of the of, of the Eastern world, China and the like, right? But where they got it wrong is that when they when this notion of freedom was introduced to them, they believed that only the sovereign or the king was free, right? This introduces to us, by the way, what is going to be referred to as the Hegelian dialect. It's a thesis. Uh, the Hegelian dialect essentially works by thesis, antithesis, and ultimate synthesis. Hence my continued usage of the word synthesization, right? It's a very triadic, it's a triadic structure, if you will upon which all of reality is built, right? And the idea here goes is that you have an initial thesis, the thesis in this particular case being that the sovereign alone is free, right? And that that thesis is challenged by an antithesis, namely that not just the sovereign is free. In this particular case, the antithesis for Hegel, he says, didn't come along until the ancient Greeks who said, as opposed to the initial thesis, that only the sovereign is free. The antithesis of the ancient Greeks was that most people are free, right? The problem with the ancient Greek uh, uh, um, manifestation of freedom is that, you know, they still believed in slavery and they, were, they still, they had a very rigid uh, society in which, you know, you were relegated essentially to the, to the position in which you were born in. So for the ancient Greeks, Although their conception of freedom was a little bit more advanced, according to Hegel, than the ancient Chinese conception of freedom in which only the, the sovereign was free, it still wasn't perfect, right? So ideally, these two ideas synthesized into a brand new thesis. And this brand new thesis, according to Hegel, manifested itself conveniently under German Christian, under the German Christian state, which said, that all people, irrespective of their affiliation, if you will, to a given uh, class of society, are free for the simple fact that they are people, right? Now, this philosophy might sound very ideal, but in our previous lecture, we mentioned why I had some reservations and why there are certain reservations that are directed towards Hegel. He's going to make a very clear exception. And the exception is going to be the one that I made at the beginning of this video. And he's going to say, all people are free except for those who were born or lived in cultures that descended from sub-Saharan Africa or traditional cultural, uh, a, a tradition of traditional agrarian cultures. So namely black and brown people, right? For Hegel, he's going to want to say those people too primitive. They don't even understand what freedom is. It hasn't entered into their consciousness yet. So they are entirely going to be left out of the unfolding of history. 
The rest of us, however, the German, those of us who are descended from this Christianity in general, and specifically that which originates from the ideas of the German state, the German Christian state, those people are able to partake in the absolute freedom in which spirit is driving towards, okay? So, with that in mind, we start to realize a little bit how this slaughter bench of history is beginning to unfold, specifically how it relates to us here in the United States of America. We discussed earlier not just the, the, the dictates of, of determinism, but in our previous lecture, we discussed how uh, you know, th this philosophy serves the foundation for much of our beliefs that we probably never even realized it, okay? The idea here is just simple. Those who follow this Hegelian philosophy in general, but also absolute idealism as a whole, they're going to want to advance the argument, as Hegel definitely does, right? That slavery in America was not a bad thing, right? And furthermore, they were going to want to advance the idea that the indigenous Holocaust that occurred, that is the, you know, the genocide that was committed against uh, the indigenous Americans, anybody from the easternmost tip of Alaska to the southernmost tip of Chile, they're going to say that that also wasn't a good thing for one of two reasons. The first of which being West Africa, where the majority of, of the slaves that were brought to the quote unquote new world hailed from, that's sub-Saharan Africa. Right. So they're going to want to say they're not included in the whims of freedom. They're just they're primitive cultures. The notion of freedom has not entered into their collective consciousness yet. And because of that, it's OK to enslave them. Right. As far as the traditional agrarian cultures are concerned, they're going to want to say these traditional uh, these indigenous Americans. Uh, he has very specific words toward Mexicans in general. Hegel does. Right. He's going to want to say. They're not included in, in, in the throes of freedom either. Because again, the ideas of freedom had yet to enter into their collective consciousness, right? Now, of course, people like you and I sitting here in 2018, we can look back on this and clearly recognize that this is just simply not the case. Uh, West African cultures were highly civil, were highly, you know, advanced and civilized cultures. Indigenous cultures here in the Americas, the same could be said of them, right? We are uh, here speaking specifically here in the Americas, right? We recognize that some of the cultures, like I'm speaking mainly of those from Mexico, right? The Nahuatl cultures, they had great technological advancements, right? I can't speak specifically on the West Africans because I'm not as educated upon them. But the idea here is that in 2018, we recognize that the people from West Africa and the people from the indigenous America, they are no less inferior to the people from Europe coming over at this, at this particular time. However, back in the time when Hegel was philosophizing, this was not the case. These people, namely people like myself and most likely people like you, right, were considered inferior. And given their inferiority, it was okay to subject them, right? It was okay to castigate them, if you will, to the slaughter bench of history. Because doing so would ultimately bring about the conditions necessary for freedom, for spirit to, to manifest itself in the absolute form in which it desires, right? So again, they're going to want to say slavery, yeah, terrible, right? But necessary. Indigenous Holocaust, terrible maybe, but necessary. Why? Because without it, you would not get this country, specifically the United States of America, we're speaking that, right? Which for all intents and purposes, we're told, is the beacon of freedom all around the world, 
right? And there is no doubt, at least for sure, without the indigenous Holocaust, that that simply would not have been the case. Why? Because this country, the United States of America, would have been relegated to a fringe corner of, of, of the continent, right? Of, of Turtle Island, if you will, the Americas, right? It would have been isolated to a fringe portion. It would not have been anywhere near as large as it is today. But the people who were coming straight off the heels of this Hegelian philosophy said, no, manifest destiny. It is God's will for us to expand from sea to shining sea for the explicit freedom of bringing about the absolute freedom in which this country is to be founded upon, right? The principles of justice, freedom, equality, brotherhood, and all that kind of stuff. They said, we're going to spread this from sea to shining sea, right? The same could also be said of, of, of slavery in the South, right? The antebellum South, they're going to want to say, listen, for the most part, this country most likely would not have been able to have been built without the slave labor, right? I'm not saying, by the way, uh, A, that these are my personal views, this is coming from the metaphysical idealism, but more importantly, B, that we probably wouldn't be here had we not enslaved the West African population and uh, committed genocide among the indigenous Americas. It may very well be that we would be in this exact place or further had we not done any of that. However, it could also have been the case that we would not have been there, right? All we know is the world that we live in here now. And according to this philosophers, this philosophy in general, we would not be here if it wasn't for these very facts, right? So with that in mind, we start to recognize then that what Hegel's gonna wanna say, particularly in terms of this universal suffering and the alienation is that, yeah, this was an initial thesis and the antithesis, I mean, think about it this way, right? I, I want you to consider, you personally, a little thought experiment, if you want, if you believe. We don't know because we don't live in that world. We live in a world where Donald Trump won the presidency, right? But I ask you, I implore you to consider whether the women's march, the, the million women's march that occurred immediately following Donald Trump's presidential election, whether the Me Too movement that is currently happening right now, whether the dramatic surge, an all-time high of women seeking public office would have occurred if Hillary Clinton would have won the presidency, right? If this Hegelian dialect is correct, for one, Donald Trump was destined to win the presidency. For two, it might not have been for entirely bad reasons, right? It may very well have been that Donald Trump winning the presidency, for example, was the complete antithesis toward our original thesis, which was that we living in 2017, I believe when it was, if not 17, 16, whenever he was, I believe it was 16, right? That he was elected, took office in 2017. We had this idea as a country that we had somehow moved past all of our historical roots, uh, namely those of, the, uh, of a racist, sexist, um, uh, ableist country, for example, just to name a few. Right. And that we are somehow advanced and beyond that. And now we are moving forward to the future because, look, we just had a black president. Right. So we have been, if you will, lulled into a false sense of security. And what the antithesis, namely that which was presented by the Donald Trump presidency presented us with is the blatant realization that this clearly was never the case, that we still as a country, despite the fact that we had a black president, were nowhere near being moved past our racist, our racist origins our sexist origins, our ableist origins, et cetera, and so on and so forth. And that what a Donald Trump presidency presented was, a, you know, just the embodiment of this very fact. And that had Hillary Clinton won, 
maybe not, maybe none of this would have been brought to light and we would have been continued to be lulled into this false sense of security where we believed that everything was progressing when in reality it was just simply not being ignored. So again, I implore you to think, had she won the presidency, would we be where we are today? Namely, a position where people are up in arms and perhaps rightfully so, complaining about the or protesting, if you will, to use a better term, right? About the lack of representation of people of color, if you will, right? The lack of representation of women, et cetera, and so on and so forth. Many of which, by the way, were, again, initially left out from the from, from this Hegelian dialect, which served as the foundation for the country that we are living in, which to, you know, just to tie it back in with the philosophy is, if these ideas permeated the consciousness of the people who laid the foundation for this country, it's only natural that it manifested itself, right? In such a way where the structures were created to keep these people oppressed, okay? So whether or not it was, uh, uh, whether or not it's a conspiracy or whether or not it was just a, a passive flaw in the course of history, that's up to you to decide. The ultimate idea here, though, however, is that maybe, just maybe, a Donald Trump presidency can be a good thing. And maybe, if the metaphysical idealists are correct, that slavery was a good thing and that genocide was a good thing. Again, not my personal views, but the idea here is as follows. If we didn't have slavery, for example, initial thesis, all men are created equal, except those who are not wealthy, white, straight, Protestant, land-owning uh, white males, which means that even if you were a white male, if you didn't own land, you were not created equally. You were not free. That was the initial thesis of the country, okay? But then the country continues to develop and, 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 a, and a competing uh, antithesis arises. And they say, okay, what about all men are created equally as long as they're white? They no longer have to be rich or land-owning as long as they're white and straight and Protestant and so on and so forth. So a new synthesization, the synthesis occurred, which gave birth to a new thesis. Okay, new thesis. All men are created equally, unless they are black or brown, right? And then inevitably, the competing antithesis came along and said, okay, how about all men are created equally, irrespective of the color of their skin? Boom, the civil war occurs. And now all of a sudden, all men are created equally, irrespective of the color of their skin. New synthesis gives birth to a, this synthesis gives birth to a new thesis. The new thesis is now, all men are created equally. And then women are sitting back in the fray, they're sitting back in the cut and they're like, what's all this men talk, right? I see all this freedom for men, but I don't see a lot of freedom for the women here in the United States of America. So the women come along with their antithesis and say, how about instead of all men are created equal, we say all human are created equally. And then you get the suffrage movement, the women's vote, the right to vote, right? The women's right to representation, the women's right to leave their house and actually be responsible for their lives, to get an education, all the great things that we see women are capable of doing here to this day. And thus, the synthesis between this idea that gives birth to a new a, a new synthesis, or rather a new thesis, which says all human, irrespective of their race, irrespective of their rather ethnicity, irrespective of their gender, are created equally and are thus entitled to all the freedoms that this country, the United States, was predicated upon, right? And then fast forwarding a couple, uh, a couple of decades later, we say, okay, but what about all gay people, because if you remember in our previous, in our, in our very first thesis, it was only wealthy, straight, straight white men, right? 
And now we've already gone through, we've already, you know, we already uh, deconstructed the majority of the barriers, but the sexual orientation one still remains. For example, in Texas, you can get fired for being gay, right? Like that's still very well, that, that, that law is still in the books, right? But you can also get married now as a gay person in Texas, right? So the, the initial thesis was, okay, let's deconstruct this idea that all humans are created equally with the antithesis that let's also include the sexual orientation for a new synthesis. And the idea here, which gives birth to a new thesis and so on and so forth. Again, all of reality, a triadic structure, which builds upon the complexity of the previous thesis, antithesis, et cetera, and so on and so forth, right? So the idea here then is that we're constantly progressing towards a more absolute towards a, a clearer understanding of what freedom is and that the more we progress towards this absolute freedom the less and less alienation and by proxy suffering that is being experienced by the individual mind that is being that has been divorced and separated from the universal mind and that slowly but surely the chasm is starting to is becoming less and less wide until inevitably the two merge into the universal consciousness that Hegel tells us Christianity will ultimately provide us, right? So again, just to give fair credit to this Hegelian philosophy, they're gonna to wanna to say the, meta, the absolute idealist, yeah, slavery, bad, but, but would we have this level of understanding of freedom that we do today without it? Would you know love without hate? Would you know darkness without light without darkness, et cetera, and so on and so forth? Indigenous Holocaust, bad, but without it, you know, the people who are descended from the initial indigenous inhabitants of this planet would not be able to partake in the structures of freedom that was created in this very country that we live in today. That is their argumentation. That is their line of reasoning. It's unfortunate, right, that the, 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 the descendants of the West African slaves had to experience 500 years of slavery, right? It's unfortunate that the ancestors of the indigenous inhabitants of the Americas had to experience 500 years of colonialism. But all of that is over with now, the, the, the meta absolute idealists are gonna to wanna to say. It's all over, history has ended and it has manifested itself in this absolute sense of freedom, one that is being protected by this bureaucratic state administered by the rule of law in which you as a person who can be gay, straight, black, brown, white, it doesn't matter, your freedoms are protected. According to this uh, metaphysical philosophy, none of that uh, metaphysical idealism, none of that would have been possible unless we had progressed through the slaughter bench of history. Again, much like the previous lecture, there are a lot of difficulties with this interpretation of history, if you will this teleological push towards history manifesting itself toward in, in this absolute, you know, sense of freedom. But for now, I implore you again to consider the example of a Donald Trump, irrespective of what side of the, of the political spectrum you lie on, right? And ask yourself how specifically it relates to the absolute idealism we're talking about in general and the Hegelian dialect as a whole. Historical dialectical materialism is generally seen to be the inversion of metaphysical or absolute idealism, right? But it picks up with the crux of the argument we're gonna to discuss today, which is the Hegelian interpretation of the master-slave dialect, right? This master-slave dialect is gonna serve not only as the crux for uh, the historical material dialectical materialism that we're gonna discuss again next week. So. Getting right into it, okay? 
Going back to our very first lecture, we recognize again that Hegel believes that humans are nothing more than a series of actions, right? And that these actions are driven by these desires that we have, which again, originate in our consciousness that were constructed for us by people that came along long before you and I were even a thought, all right? Now, what Hegel's gonna wanna tell us is that the deepest desire that humans have is one of universal recognition. So whenever you see people like taking a selfie or whatever the case might be, you can look back to yourself now as having taken a, a semester's worth of philosophy and be like, according to absolute idealism, specifically the master-slave dialect, that person, maybe even yourself, desires nothing more than universal recognition. And when you put it up on social media and you get all those little likes, that it helps satisfy the desire that you have for universal recognition, that that person has for universal recognition. According to Hegel, universal recognition is the only thing that provides us with lasting satisfaction. And that since it's universal, that means that it's something that all humans are striving for. Like, just ask yourself, like, the majority of the things that you do, whether you're at the gym, you know, getting those gains in, whether you're studying to be the most uh, advanced person in your class, whether when you go out to work, you want to be, you know, the boss, the manager, whatever the case might be. If this metaphysical idealism is correct, this master-slave dialect is correct, it's because you desire universal recognition, right? Um, and it's because of this universal recognition that we as humans are caught in a constant battle for recognition with one another. You realize that, I mean, just even social media alone, the second you upload your selfie, you are battling for attention with another person who probably just uploaded a selfie, if not at the same time that you did, at some immediate time, you know, around the same time that you did, right? And if not around the same time that you did at some other point in the future, and now you're battling, or in the past rather, and now you're battling to see whether your selfie can get more like than their selfies or whatever the case might be, because the more likes your selfie gets, the more recognition you have and less recognition they have. And the less recognition they have, the better for you, because that means all those precious eyes and likes are gonna go away from them and towards you, according to this master-slave dialect, right? So essentially, the idea is that we are caught in these quote-unquote life-or-death battles, right? And I say quote-unquote because it's a little more complex than I am literally going to kill the person for recognition. Sometimes it manifests in actual death, right? But think about it. What good is murdering somebody that you desire recognition from, eh? Ideally, you cannot be recognized unless you have somebody there to recognize you, right? So when we say life or death, it's not always to be taken literally, right? Whatever the case, we recognize that this desire for universal recognition and our ensuing actions are the foundation for this Hegelian interpretation of the master-slave dialect, okay? So according to Hegel, what he's going to want to say specifically is that a person, you and I, we have no sense of self. We have no idea who we are. We have no concept of ourselves, right? And that the only sense of self that we have, the only concept of ourself that we have is one that has been taught to us by someone else, okay? Uh, going back to our previous lecture about the master's narrative, we start to realize then a little bit how, say here in America, for example, as the descendant of somebody who was 
whose ancestors were victims of the conquest, if you will. Right, not victims. I don't really like to use that word because it implies that they had no say in the matter, which they did. Right. In fact, uh, if if you read your Nahual history, you'll see that the reason the Spanish were able to conquer the Nahual is not because the Spanish were inferior or were superior by any stretch of the imagination. There's only five hundred of them. The Aztec Empire was over a hundred thousand people strong. The army alone, right? The military alone. The reason they were able to conquest the, 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 the Aztecs specifically is because the Aztecs did the same thing the Spanish did. They went out and they colonized and they conquered people left and right, right? And they had so many enemies that their enemies teamed up with the Spaniards and that's why they were able to overthrow the Aztecs, right? So I don't like to use the word victim because it implies like the Aztecs were helpless. Like, they weren't helpless. You know, they, they, they were not necessarily the best people either, right? And because of that, it helped bring about the fall of their empire. Right. Uh, but definitely as the, 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 the descendant of, 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 of a culture, the Nahual culture in general, that was, you know, colonized, if you will. Uh, I, you, I, the only thing that I know about myself is that which was taught to me by the colonizers. Right. The, the victor's narrative, again, if you will. Uh, the language that I speak is not indigenous to the Americas, right? My name. I like to tell people that's my slave name. You know, Isaac Senesetto, that is a name. The name Isaac in general is a Christian name, right? Ancient Hebrew, okay? Uh, the name Senesetos, that's a Spanish name. As somebody who identifies as, a, a, as, a, as an indigenous person of the Americas, I realized they know, they know Isaac in Nahua, right? They know Senesetos in Nahua. That's a slave name that was imposed on me. The, the, the last name, Senesetos, I am the property of whoever the Senesetos was in Spain, right? Allegedly. Okay, uh, the name Isaac, it, 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 it's a direct name that's been uh, that's been imposed on me from the colonized Spaniards who, you know, who took over the who, who had the, 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 the Christian faith imposed on them as well. And they came over here and imposed the Christian faith on on the indigenous Mexican Indians that they colonized. Right. This, this is the victor's narrative. And this this is the crux of not only my identity, but the identity of the millions of people that live uh, on, on some Anuak, Turtle Island, Anuak. Right. Uh, it, this idea that you're a Christian, for instance, again, something we've discussed longer or already before, because you personally have come to a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Christ, maybe, or maybe you're a Christian because you're the descendant of people who were colonized and told, and now you worship Christ, uh, Christ as opposed to, you know, or whatever the case might be, right? So, again, this idea that, you know, we don't have no sense of self, and that the only sense of self that we have is that which is taught to us. And who is it going to be taught to us by? The master class, the victor's narrative, the people who decided what it is that they want to teach you. As we get later on to the semester, specifically next week and the following week, we're going to realize these victor's narratives, they're only ever going to teach you that which benefits the victor, right? Which perpetuates their uh, epistemology, if you will, their ontology, their view of the world, that which benefits them. And if we're being honest, if you were in their position, you would probably do the same because power, right? Everybody wants power. Uh, hopefully by the end of the semester, we'll realize different conceptions of power and how they manifest and all that kind of stuff, right? But for now, if this Hegelian version of the master-slave dialect is correct, we will only ever refer to oneself and say things about ourselves in terms of that which we've been educated by, namely by the masters, okay? So... That's not to say, however, that we are stuck in that particular mode of being. Ideally, we can develop a sense of self-consciousness, if you will, right? Through a confrontation with others, right? It's what the Hegelian version of the master-slave dialect is going to want to tell us. That, again, we can develop a self-consciousness through confrontation with other people, right? 
So the idea here is that uh, the ideas of, uh, that we have of who we are are developed socially and not in isolation, that we gain our sense of identity from communicating and, you know, with other people from, you know, essentially confronting our existence with that of other people's, right? Specifically, what Hegel's going to want to say is that we meet other consciousnesses, if you will, and that we struggle to negate them, right? Uh, as we progress later into the existential portion of the semester, we'll discuss it in terms of like relationships, for example, right? And I'll ask you the question, how many of you are in a relationship because you actually want to be the, with the person you're with? That because you actually love the person that you're with, right? Or conversely, how many of you are in a relationship because you're doing nothing more than seeking to negate the person that you're with? You're seeking to keep them subservient to you. You want them to be your slave and you want to be the master that's recognized as such in a relationship. And yet conversely, you're afraid to leave that person because you know that if that person, if you leave that person or God forbid, if that person leaves you, then you will be left without the recognition that you desire. And we'll ask you, I'll ask you ultimately, is that real love or is that just selfishness on your behalf, right? Chances are it's probably selfishness on your behalf, right? The idea here, again, is that, again, when we, when we meet other consciousnesses, we are struggling to negate them for our own purposes because we recognize that person poses a threat to the universal recognition that I desire, right? And that the problem is, when we first meet these other consciousnesses, our initial reaction is to try to objectify that person. We are trying to treat them, if you will, as an object, okay? Um, but the problem is, those other consciousnesses are trying to do the same to us. While we're trying to negate them, they're trying to negate us, okay? Specifically because, for the most part, people don't like being treated as objects, okay? And more importantly, because again, they desire the same universal recognition that you do, right? So we recognize then that we, in recognizing them as their own consciousnesses, that again, that limits our freedoms, right? And we don't want our, our freedom limited because again, first of all, absolute freedom, and secondly, universal recognition, okay? So then again, we strive to negate that person. Now, Assuming we are successful in negating that person, then we clearly are the victor and thus we become the master, right? And just in case you're wondering, the master mentality is essentially defined by that which is either willing to kill or to be killed than to submit to domination. But again, I implore you to consider the concept of death here, not in the, all, not always in the physical form, right? Sometimes it's, it's sometimes pretty metaphor, mostly it's metaphorical because again, what good is a dead slave in this particular instance? If you have no one to reckon, if you as a master desire universal recognition, what good is vanquishing your enemy if they're not gonna be around to recognize you, right? So whatever the case might be, we recognize that having been victorious, the master demands recognition from their subservience, namely those who they have vanquished. Because for the master, again, recognition is the ultimate form of acknowledgement. That's the, the utmost, that's the highest pinnacle of acknowledgement, right? Recognition. But, <clears throat> you know, being a master, it isn't always everything that it's cracked out to be. Ah, oh, man. J. Cole, it is taking over when you know what we gonna do. The only real revolution happens right inside of you. We are not ready for that yet though, but we are starting to lay the seeds. 
We gotta crawl before we ball, baby, right? The master still has their own limitation, the chief among which being they're always going to be considered equals among fellow masters. After all, what master is going to be willing to acquiesce their masterdom to another? None, because if they were, they would have been slaves and not masters. So next time you turn on television and you see the news about Russia and China and the United States on the brink of World War III, recognize that the reason this is, according to the master-slave dialect of metaphysical idealism that is espoused to us by Hegel, is because those three countries all are afflicted by the master mentality. And rather than acquiesce to the other, and rather than acknowledge one particular country as superior, they would be willing to negate the other country in order to get that acknowledgement, even if it means death, right? So the second limitation, right, is that the position of a master is pretty non-evolving. Once you've achieved masterdom, you're a master and that's it. It's not like there's like some super saiyan level of masterdom. No, that's not how it works. You're a master and that's it. You are stuck in a, non, in, a non, in a non-evolving position. At least a slave has something to look forward to. Whether or not they'll actually do it or whether or not they realize that, that's a different story. But started from the bottom, now we're here. Once you make it here, where else are you going to go? To the higher top, I guess. Maybe the super master, whatever the case might be, right? And again, most importantly, the master is always, always dependent on the slave, right? We have this idea, for example, that the people in control, the master class, if you will, that they have all the power. Uh, I don't understand how that how that reasoning stands. You know, I, I just don't get it because you realize that the master is only ever one, you know, the collective of one, if you will, right? Where the slaves are the many. And that the slaves are the ones that give the master the power, not because they have actual power to give, but because without acknowledging the master as a master, they have no, they have no power, right? But of course, it's a little bit more complex than that. And namely, it's complex in the sense that, I mean, just think, just Imagine, I, the best way that I can talk about it is in the United States government, right? It's always fun games of going, going back to our initial lecture of this uh, series on absolute idealism, right? Uh, when I talked about the Antifa and these, and these Marxist people, like, I, I can't help but laugh, right? I'm like, man, come on. You really, yes, there's only one United States government, but it is a powerful government for one. For two, uh, America is pretty awesome. Just look around. I'm sitting here in the comfort of my house, philosophizing to you, sitting in the comfort of your house, wherever, philosophizing. Chances are you probably wouldn't be able to do this in the majority of countries. Why would you want to overthrow this in the first place? Secondly, I live in like in the Northeast El Paso and I get to drive by Fort Bliss every single day. And I realize I'm like, mm, that's a pretty powerful military they got there, right? In fact, it's the greatest military the world has ever known. And if you don't, if you don't believe this, I mean, you're historically ignorant, right? It's a powerful military, okay? Um, so the idea that, you know, some people from Antifa, these, this, this fractional majority, this fractional minority, or these alleged uh, Marxists are going to somehow overthrow us, it's just clearly nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense, right? This United States government is powerful, and it's powerful for a reason. Namely, they are willing to kill, and they are willing to be killed, namely in the forms of soldiers and all that that they send off to wars, right? In order to maintain their position as the masters of the world. Now, that might be my American exceptionalism talking, but I look around and I say to myself, man, the United States pretty much has this game on lockdown. You have the countries that are competing for that position of master, right? But 
it's it's scary. World, the, the prospect of World War Three is terrifying, right? But we realize that if it were to happen, you're fortunate as an American that you have a pretty high chance of being on the victorious side, right? Historically speaking. Now, there's other things that might happen, like economics and all that kind of stuff. But for the most part, from the military aspect, we realize that we're in a very advantageous position, right? Uh, furthermore, we realize that the reason these quote-unquote slaves, uh, we don't ever rebel is because you're afraid of death and you're afraid of dying. And you realize that the United States of America is not afraid of killing people and it's not afraid of letting people die, right? You, me, everybody here in this country are the direct result of some form or another, as we discussed in our previous video, of genocide and enslavement, okay? And if this country that has been built on the backs of genocide and enslavement is willing to kill millions of people and enslave millions of more people just to attain the power, they're not going to be hesitant about continuing to do so to ensure that they maintain their power, right? And thus, this is where the, the slave mentality is born. Remember, the master willing to kill and die for power, right? Recognition, if you will. The slave, not so much so, okay? In fact, in the face of death and the ultimate dread that accompanies ultimate nothingness, right? The slave would rather live as a slave than face the annihilation inherent with certain death, right? So again, going back to the Antifa and these, these alleged Marxists, I'm just like, it's, it's cute, really. Like, I can't help. It's just, it's just cute. Like, I look at them, I'm like, okay, that's cute. That's a privilege. That's a unique privilege that is afforded to you here in the United States of America. Try and take that to the Middle East, for example, and try to overthrow the monarchy in the Middle East and see how quickly they'll put a kibosh to that. At least here in the United States, we tolerate those people who are like, okay, dude, go ahead and do your thing, right? While we over here are going to do our thing, the, the quote unquote status quo. Now, am I saying it's right? Not necessarily. Am I saying it's wrong? Definitely not at all. What I am saying is that I enjoy the status quo. It might not be the best. It might not be the end of history like, like Hegel professes, right? But this is clearly preferable than living somewhere where, say, if I was a woman, I couldn't even get an education because the Taliban, for instance, would put a bullet in my head. If you don't believe me, go ask Malala. Go watch all the documentaries about her, et cetera, and so on and so forth, right? Again, it's the fear of death that puts the slave in a slave position, right? So you can have a million slaves and only one master, but if those million slaves are afraid of dying, it doesn't matter. This is, all you need is one master who's not afraid of dying and who's not afraid of killing to keep those slaves in position, right? To keep them in check, right? And because of this, the slave chooses, right? They're choosing to live for the master's ends, not to their own, right? However, through the suffering and through the alienation and through the coerced work that the slave finds themselves subjected to for the master's ends, right? They start to develop an ideal, right? Of what they would like to become. Namely, everything that they are not now, okay? And because of this, the slave ideally can free themselves to a higher level of self, a higher level of understanding of who you are, okay? This is why, going back to our boy, our boy J. Cole, what good is taking over when you know what you're gonna do? The only real revolution happens right inside of you. I said what good is taking over when you know what you're gonna do, et cetera, and so on and so forth, right? Let's put it this way. 
If you were in a position of power, you would probably do the exact same thing that the people who are in positions of power right now are currently doing. If you don't believe me, just look at the history of the past four presidents. Barack Obama, George Bush second, uh, Bill Clinton, and George Bush the first, right? They all do the same thing. And chances are, if you were to get into that position of power, you would do the same, right? Because you have no knowledge of self. The only knowledge of self that you have, moreover, is that which you've been socialized with by the victor's narrative. And the victor's narrative, again, is only ever going to teach you that which perpetuates the victor's narrative, right? So when you get up there, you're going to do the exact same thing as the person who was before you, okay? However, being in the slave position, according to the master-slave dialect, you have the unique ability to free yourself to a higher level of self with a capital S, right? So these struggles, according to Hegel, are the catalysts for change that determine the evolution of history, okay? The importance of Christianity for Hegel specifically comes into play when the slave realizes they can free themselves from all of their worldly masters simply by submitting to absolute slavehood under an absolute master namely God, right? The slave is going to tell us, well, the slave mentality is going to create this idea that tells us, don't worry about your oppression and don't worry about your suffering here on the earthly realm. It doesn't mean anything, right? And don't worry about the people who are oppressing you no less because even those people are subservient to the one true God. So as long as you, right, prostrate yourself to the one absolute God, everything else doesn't matter. The conditions of suffering you find yourself in, the oppression that you find yourself in, the people who are oppressing you, that's not important. This master slave dialect is going to tell us coming from the slave mentality perspective. They're going to say, all that matters is that you submit to the most high, right? Because in doing so, you free yourself of your oppression to the worldly masters, okay? Hegel's going to continue by telling us, ideally, the idea extrapolates. They're going to tell us that true freedom and true happiness, no less, will never be found here. Will never be found here on Earth. That it only ever comes in the quote-unquote hereafter, which, of course, begins after death. Right. So, as a result, Hegel sees no reason to fight, if you will, for freedom. For once you've dominated your fear, for one, freedom's going to manifest itself through the push of history. Right. And if you haven't been, if you're one of those people that were left out of the push of history, inevitably you'll get there at some point, I'm sure, right? Uh, moreover, what reason do you have to fight for freedom from your oppressors, if you will, right? If all, if you, if you know that once you die, you stand to be liber liberated to absolute freedom, okay? So the idea here then is that these people who were once so terrified of death and dying that they were willing to submit to, uh, to slavery, they're now looking forward to death and dying. Death no longer becomes something to fear. As a matter of fact, it becomes something to look forward to because you realize that what this death ultimately is, is nothing more than you as a slave being freed from your oppressors and being released to the, the absolute freedom and joy and happiness that you seek in your life, namely that which is provided to you by your absolute master, God, okay? You're eternally free by death, if you will, okay? And this, according to Hegel, is the final stage in development through which the slave can ultimately free themselves from the master, okay? Again, once you overcome your fear of death, 
you learn how to truly live an autonomous life, a life as a free individual with a higher sense of self, one in which you can look at your situation here on this earthly realm and not be bothered by it because you know that there's this eternally great land of absolute freedom just beyond death, okay? And that when you do die, guess what happens? You become one with the absolute, right? Hence perpetuating the cycle of the universal and the individual synthesizing as one, okay? So the master-slave dialect, as provided to us by Hegel, I provided you with some practical applications as well as how it relates to the philosophy of metaphysical idealism, absolute idealism as a whole. Moving forward, we're going to see some critiques of both absolute idealism and the Hegelian interpretation of the master-slave dialect. But until then, I leave you with this video and say I hope you have a great rest of your day and I will see you all next time.